little police this morning. Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I am grateful for people like Elizabeth who will take time and weekly teach our children the good news of the scriptures. And so I hope you will take the challenge and just give one Sunday this summer to give them a break. I think you will find that you're blessed by it. Well, good morning. My name is Tony Anderson. I have uh, the privilege of serving as an elder here at the chapel and also uh, about five and a half years ago came on staff as pastor of counseling and the executive pastor. But if you don't know, before that, I practiced law for about 28 years before I retired and came on staff. No, that's not when I was born again. Uh, you know, that's... <laughs> But I was a uh, commercial real estate lawyer. I was a transactional lawyer. So I tried to avoid the courtroom at all costs. But I had friends and colleagues who were trial lawyers and who were litigators. And one of their cardinal rules they will tell me is that if you were in court asking a witness a question, you did not ask a question that you did not know the answer to. And more so than that, you didn't ask a question that you didn't know how the witness was going to answer the question. Now, why would that be a good rule of thumb for a lawyer in a courtroom? Why would you not want to ask a question that you did not know how the witness was going to answer? Surprises, Surprises, right? You could get a surprise answer that would totally torpedo your case. Well, we're going to see today in our scripture where someone thought they were asking a question that they were going to get an answer, but they were surprised and their case got torpedoed. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. And while you're doing that, um, just a reminder, last week, Doug's message got us to the end of Mark chapter 9. After Mark chapter 9, that marked the end of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. And he went from Galilee into Judea, and he ministered there for about six months. Now, Matthew and Mark do not cover that period of Jesus's ministry, but it is covered in Luke 10, chapters 10 through 18. But now in Mark 10, we pick up where Jesus is in his uh, ministry in Perea. It's a region east of the Jordan River, and it was established by King Herod. And that's going to become relevant, as you'll see in a minute. So he's in that region where uh, Mark chapter 10 picks up. And so I want us to read the passage uh, up front so we have a general overview, and then we'll break it down during during the hour. Getting up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So in our series, we see today that Jesus encounters divorce. We just have to acknowledge divorce can be a very weighty, sensitive topic for many of us. Many of us have been impacted by divorce. 
I come from a family where my mother and father were divorced. I'm sure many of you have been impacted by divorce as well. And so we should be grateful that we're going to hear straight from Christ his response to the issue of divorce. For background, though, if you wanted the short answer on what God thinks about divorce, you could go to the Old Testament book of Malachi. It is the last book in your Old Testament. Malachi was a prophet, but he was a post-exile prophet. What do I mean by that? In the history of, of the Jewish nation, the Jews had a pattern where they would worship the Lord wholeheartedly, and then they would start to drift and worship other gods and intermarry into other faiths. And then because of that rebellion, God would bring consequences upon them until they repented. And this cycle would continue until ultimately God said, I am as part of your consequence, I am going to have you captured by your enemies, carried away out of the promised land, and you will be in captivity for a period of 70 years. And that's what happened. But after 70 years, God in his faithfulness brought them back to Jerusalem. And in just a period of 20 years after their return, the city had been rebuilt and the temple had been rebuilt. Now it had not, it's not as majestic as Solomon's temple was, but it was sufficient that they were again uh, practicing their sacrifices and their worship uh, was restored. But then just within another hundred years, their religion had become nothing but empty ritual again. And even their priest, even their priests had started divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying foreign pagan women. And for this, God, through the prophet Malachi, said he was going to bring judgment on them. So Malachi writes in chapter 2, starting in verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Malachi, the, the Jews are saying, judgment on us? Why? What, what have we done? As if they didn't know. Malachi says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So as God wraps up the Old Testament, he makes it very clear, God hates divorce. And this isn't, I hate Brussels sprouts. This isn't one of those things. God hates divorce. And that's how our Old Testament ended. And now 400 years later, you have a period of 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament when Jesus comes and is born and is walking our earth in his earthly ministry. And at this time, again, there is, uh, again, divorce is rampant. And in the Jewish culture, there's really two schools of thought. There's one school of thought led by Rabbi Shammai, who was very narrow. It says divorce is only permitted for sexual immorality. But there was also a very popular school of thought led by Rabbi Halil, who says, basically, you can divorce for any reason. If you find any indecency, you can divorce your wife. And so there are documented cases where they were permitted to divorce their wives if she burned dinner. You could divorce your wife if while she was out in public, if she turned too quickly that her garment came up and you could see her ankles, you could divorce her. If she were seen talking to another man, you could divorce her. If she said anything negative against your mother, 
her mother-in-law, you could divorce her. Now, my mother was in first hour and I assured her that I never had that grounds for divorce (laughs) because my wife wouldn't do that. But again, it was very prominent. It was very common. It was common among the religious leaders. And we know when something gets common among the religious leaders, it then becomes common among the people. And so that is the setting that we have today when we have this Jesus encounter. Jesus has traveled through Perea. He's on the east of the Jordan and many Jews lived there because it had been established by King Herod. But also many Jews would pass through that region because on the way to Jerusalem, they did not want to go through Samaria because the Samaritans were their enemies. The Jews considered them religious half-breeds. So they would come to the east of the Jordan. So there were a lot of people there. And as is custom, Jesus was teaching. Matthew says he was also healing. So Jesus was teaching and healing. He was popular. He had the crowds and the Pharisees were looking for a way to discredit him. And that's when we have this question. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. We see in the Matthew passage, they add for any reason at all. So knowing what they wanted to do to discredit him, why did the Pharisees ask this question? Why would they ask this question? Go back to my intro. If you're building a case and you ask a question, what's your thinking? I know how this witness is going to answer the question. So why would the Pharisees think they know how Jesus is going to answer the question? because he already did in his inaugural sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus had said, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. They were hoping he would answer the question the same way. Because you gotta remember, divorce is prevalent, very common. And so if he takes this stance in front of this people who are then convicted, his popularity goes in the tank. That's their hope. The other thing to consider is King Herod's son now, King uh, Herod uh, Antipas is now the king in this area. He had divorced his wife and married his brother's ex-wife, Herodias. If you're familiar with the story, John the Baptist had admonished them for that practice and, John the ba- and, and the king had ultimately had John the Baptist beheaded. So although the scripture doesn't say, there could be some thinking. If Jesus answers this question the same way in this region, King Herod may take care of our Jesus problem for us. And so that is the setting when they answer the question. They were building their case. So if you were making a movie or a TV show Right when they asked this question, the camera would zoom in on the, the arrogant, cocky lawyer who had just made his case, who was getting ready to put the nail in the coffin. You know, the bad guys are going to win. And if it was a TV movie, you'd cut to commercial, right? <laughs> because the suspense is there. We know they've set him up. He is in a lose-lose situation. But then Jesus answers, What did Moses command you? 
What is Jesus basically saying with this answer? When we think of the writings of Moses, what do we call it? The Bible, the scriptures. Jesus is basically saying, what does the scriptures say? What's the Bible say? Jesus is pointing out, again, that the Bible is our authority. Not what the culture says. Not what majority popular opinion says. Not what is politically correct. Not even what certain religious leaders would say. The Bible is our authority. You, haven't, you don't have to attend the chapel very long before you see this picture, right? That we live with the Bible over our head as our authority. And that's what Jesus is reinforcing. We didn't create the idea. It was Jesus' teaching. And so I want to ask you that, is that your practice? In your home, when there's something, decisions to be made, is your first thought, wait a minute, what's the Bible say about this? Or do you say, you know what? I know what I want to do. Maybe I can find a blog that reinforces this. Or maybe I can ask a friend. And if I can find a friend who does go to church, then I can say a Christian friend told me what to do. Rather than asking ourselves, what does the Bible say? Now, the Bible has clear commands of things we should do and not do. And then they also have principles, wisdom that help us make decisions. There's no black and white in the Bible. Do you homeschool your children or send them to public school or private school? There are principles there that you use. What I want to challenge us is why don't we commit today? Let's do the absolutes, things that are not negotiable, that are clear from scripture. Just think of some of the things that we could be true about CFC and hopefully the church as a whole. Do not marry an unbeliever. That's, that's not, that's clear. Do not marry an unbeliever. And you know how you avoid falling in love with an unbeliever? Don't date them. You, can, you don't, don't, get, don't hear me incorrect. You can be friends. You can share the gospel. Don't date an unbeliever. We are commanded to not only forgive because we've been forgiven, but to be reconciled. If I've sinned against someone, I need to initiate reconciliation, seeking their forgiveness. Do not use unkind words. It's 1138. How many of you have made it just today to 1138 without an unkind word to anybody? Yeah. Okay. That, y'all are just showing off now. Okay. <laughs> but no unkind words. Don't lie. Don't deceive. When someone asks you a question, you tell the whole truth because you know what they're trying to get, what information they want. Don't steal. Okay? Office supplies are not part of your compensation package. All right? If you are paid by the hour and you're five, ten minutes late, you still clock in as if you're on time? Are you daily stealing ten minutes from your employer? Honor and obey your parents. Students, if you are living at home under the authority of your parents, as long as they are not asking you to sin, we are commanded, you're commanded to obey your parents. And even those of us who are no longer under their authority are commanded to honor our parents, to give them respect, to seek wisdom from them. Be generous. We're, we're managers. Everything, God, everything we have is God's, so we are to be generous. We are to love your enemy. That means demonstrable acts of kindness. 
Very simply, your enemy should know they've been loved. Okay? Loving is more than not hating. It is demonstrable acts of kindness. And then consider the interests of others as more important than your own. I'm in relationship with a wife, an adult son, a daughter-in-law, a granddaughter, a mom, and fellow workers. Am I considering their interest as more important than mine? And it's not, say, like half the time, all the time. But you know what? We're always big about application. And as Bill Winton says, I'm going to put the cookies low on the shelf for you right now. I'm going to give you an application to this that you can do before you hit your car. You ready? Summer of Sundays. There's a sign-up in the children's table right in front of the gym. Would you consider the interests of the children and those workers more important than yours and agree I'll do one hour this summer? Just need 200 people. I would like us to take that off Joni's plate so that when she comes to work tomorrow, that's not something she has to worry about. Easy application of considering the interests of others is more important than you. So if we did all those things, would we look different? Yeah, I hope you would say yes. Would you catch flack for it in your schools? Okay, this is what I wanna encourage you to do when you catch flack. A lot of times we try to say, well, it's the right thing to do and all that's true, but I so appreciate men and women whose response is, I do it because the Bible says so. I think of people like Reverend Franklin Graham or John MacArthur. Have you ever seen them on a talk show like Larry King Live where they have a panel and they're trying to address some controversial topic and they'll try to make it personal. And so the, the moderator will say, well, Reverend Franklin, are you saying fill in the blank? And he says, no, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible is the authority. And I would encourage us to use the Bible and not be ashamed to say it is our authority. So Jesus asked the question, but the Pharisees aren't giving up. All right, they go, okay, this didn't exactly turn out the way we expected, but they're not giving up. So the Pharisees say, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And, and in the Matthew passage, they say, they ask him, well, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? The Pharisees were implying through these statements that divorce was either commanded or at least permitted. In either event, it was righteous. We can do this and be righteous in what we're doing. And they were referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and we're going to see that they weren't even using the passage correctly. So we're going to read Deuteronomy, these four verses, and then unpack it because there's a lot of back and forth between first, uh, first husband, second husband, things of that nature. But in Deuteronomy, Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, We'll come back to talk about that. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband, the second husband, turns against her and and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband, the second husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, first husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. 
what Moses was saying is Moses was acknowledging a practice. They were divorcing their wives if they found any indecency. And again, that's not sexual immorality. In fact, that word indecency is so broad, it was actually used also in chapter 23 earlier when the command was the, the Jews lived in camps and settlements and if they went outside the camp to go to the bathroom, they were commanded to take a shovel and to cover their waist. Otherwise, that would be indecent. And so the practice, if you read that, there wasn't a command to divorce. Moses was acknowledging a practice that they were finding indecencies, anything in order to basically abandon the wife of their youth, the mother of their children and send them away for a newer model. And the command was, think before you do that in your hardness of heart because if she becomes available again to marry and you realize your mistake, too bad. You cannot take her back. Moses was addressing the hardness of their heart where they were cavalierly saying, as long as I do the paperwork, I can divorce my wife. That is the context of that. So Jesus does address the issue. I mean, he, he does say, because our hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment about not being able to remarry. But instead of focusing on divorce, he's not going to let them control the conversation. He pivots the conversation from divorce to marriage. And he points out, on Mark 10, 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. From the beginning, God created male and female. God, marriage was instituted by God and is good and part of God's grace to mankind. Marriage was God's idea. It wasn't man's idea. And everything from God, every gift from God is good. We've sang that today. And marriage is one of the ways that God pours out his grace on mankind. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have received his salvation grace, his mercy. But we still need his grace every day to live the life we're called to. And God has many delivery systems for his grace the gift of his word, but also in marriage. Marriage is a gift of God's grace to mankind. Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is pointing out from the beginning, marriage was one man, one woman. It wasn't one man, five women. God could have done that. Actually, when you think about it, part of one of the commands was to be fruitful and multiply. You would have multiplied the earth a lot faster with one man, five women, five wives. But that was not God's plan. His perfect plan, one man, one woman. Jesus then continues quoting Genesis 2.24 in verse 7. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, if you're studying your Bible and someone says, open to this verse and you read this and you're trying to understand it, what question would you have? What question should first come to your mind? And I'm giving you a hint up here. I'm not like that other guy who teaches who's trying to trick you. What's the reason? 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Six verses up in Genesis 2.18, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. It's always interesting. Adam's not the one who said it's not good to be alone. God said it. So God, we start to see the purposes for marriage and how it is part of God's grace. First of all, not good for man to be alone. One of the purposes of marriage is companionship. Next month, Lisa and I will celebrate 35 years of marriage. And 35 years ago, when I said I do, I made a covenant to be her companion. Now, I haven't always kept that covenant very well because companionship means I want... I'm choosing to be her companion, not trying to find a way where she can be my companion. A perfect example of one of my failings is um, I was, we were married after my first year of law school. So we had two years left of law school. And so we lived in Athens, Georgia, and our peer group were law students. So if you go to social functions, we're hanging out with law students. And what they want to talk about is law school class and what that professor said. And can you believe that student said this or that? And we'd laugh or whatever. Poor Lisa was there like, no clue why it was funny, no clue why we'd want to talk about it. And me, in my laziness, did not want to, you know, would say, well, you had to be there. I didn't want to build the backstory so she would understand and could participate. I was not being her companion. I was happy with her being mine, being there, but I wasn't seeking to be a companion. The flip side of that, when we got married is, I I still am, but I was a huge baseball fan. And at that time, the Braves were on TBS like 154 times a year. So it just seemed like what new couples do is you watch the Braves 154 times a year. (laughs) No. Lisa didn't know a lot about baseball, didn't like baseball, but what she would do in the checkout lines of grocery stores and things, she would flip through sports magazines to try to find enough information that she could engage me in a conversation. She was seeking to be my companion. And so that's what we're called to do. If you're married, be a companion. Ask your spouse, how can I be a better companion? Intellectually, socially, physically, emotionally, ask them not because you're trying to accuse each other, but how can you get better at what God intended? Then he also said, I'm gonna make a helper suitable for him. So marriage provides us with co-laboring, the ability to work together. When it's in the counseling ministry, when we talk about this, sometimes the idea of helper suitable Husbands or wives sometimes uh, are offended by that term. But I want you to know the term help or helper in that case is the same word used 14 times in the book of Psalm referring to God as our help. That is not a demeaning term. So when we think of helper, we're not talking about the three-year-old boy with his Fisher-Price tool belt and his little yellow hammer who you say, go be daddy's helper. We are talking about providing essential help, co-laboring. See, God, when he put them in the garden, he blessed them, male and female, and commanded them to tend the garden, to subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. They were were both responsible for the work God had given them. And in our marriage, we are to co-labor. 
Are you being a good co-laborer? Do you believe your spouse could say, you know, I could use more help in pick an area? Finances, some parenting decision-making, decisions about the health insurance, you name it. It's okay to delegate when there's giftedness, but we can't be totally hands-off washing our hands of this. We are to be co-laborers. And then the whole leave and cleave, leave father and mother, there's to be a cleaving. And this is such a great picture. It says we are to leave our fathers and mothers. At when we say I do, we, we cleave. And then for the rest of our life, we should be weaving. Leave, cleave, and weave, growing in that unity. One flesh. Because when two become one, one is a number that can't be divided. You can't divide it and get a whole number. So we either leave and cleave and become one flesh. Also, because of death and divorce, there are second marriages. And so when we leave and cleave and become one flesh, some of that leaving has to be other relationships that we've made a priority. So when we remarry, we have to recognize that new spouse is now the number one priority, even above biological children. When you make that decision, that's why you want to be wise with it, the spouse, that second spouse, becomes that priority relationship because you are to cleave and become one. And after emphasizing this, Jesus then makes this point. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is interesting to think about. God instituted marriage, but he didn't just step back and say, okay, this is what marriage looks like. Now you guys participate in it as you see fit. He sovereignly brings every husband and wife together for his glory and our good. I didn't stumble on Lisa. God sovereignly brought us together. If you are married, God sovereignly brought you together because he's working it for your glory, his glory and your good. He knows your heart better than you do. And he wants to make you more like Christ. And he's going to put the spouse in your life that will make you more like Christ. Is marriage a sanctifying experience? Hey, good amens. Absolutely. Marriage and parenting, very sanctifying. But he was sovereign over it. And since he brought man and wife together, man cannot say, "Mm, got a better plan. I'm going to separate this one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. We can't say we have a better plan. But Jesus does then answer the divorce question. In Mark 10, it says, in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. So this is where we're going to look at the Mark and the Matthew passage together and sort of get a flow of how the conversation with the Pharisees took place. Because... This implies that the the disciples and Jesus are in the house after the conversation with with the Pharisees, but we see in Matthew how Jesus responded to the Pharisees. Matthew 19, 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That's Matthew 19, 9. Now he's back with the disciples in the house. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. To which the disciples back in Matthew say, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. So this is what 
If you put it together, this is what happened. Jesus does turn and answer the question to the Pharisees. If you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality, you're committing adultery. Then later, the disciples are there and they're thinking, wait a minute, we're in a culture where it's very rampant. Jesus, are you really saying that but for adultery, we cannot divorce? And he's saying, yes, if you divorce, but for that, if you divorce, you are committing adultery. And the disciples say, wow, this is pretty heavy stuff. It may be better not to marry. It may be better not to marry. So at this point, we see that the Bible establishes a person may divorce a spouse for adultery or sexual immorality. This is a may, not a command. But may would still be a righteous behavior if that happened in that circumstance. But when Jesus said this, the Bible that we have today was not completed. The canon wasn't closed. And so if we're going to do what Jesus says to encounter divorce by what do the scriptures say, we have to look one more place, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were the church of new believers. And evidently, some Corinthians were coming to Christ. They were becoming believers, but their spouses were not, or at least not yet. And it appeared that they were writing Paul letters saying, what do I do now? I'm a believer. My spouse isn't. And so Paul is answering that question in verse 12, where he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, time out here. I want us to be clear. When Paul says, I say not the Lord, this does not mean that what he's saying has less authority than the rest of the Bible. What we have to remember here, just like we went from Malachi to Jesus is, Paul is saying, I'm addressing a question that Jesus did not address. This is a new topic. But his writing for us is still just as authoritative because we know the Bible says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training, reproof, for correction, even Peter refers to Paul, Paul's writing as scripture. So we can't discount this as not being authoritative. This is authoritative teaching from Paul. For the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to live in peace. So the teaching was clear that if you were an unbel- a believer married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever still was committed to the marriage, you were to stay married. But if the unbelieving spouse left, abandoned the marriage, then you were to let them leave. If an unbelieving spouse leaves a marriage, the believing spouse is to let him or her leave. And the words let them leave is a passive imperative, meaning you are instructed to let them leave and not try to cling to that marriage. As you look at that, is there a, 
it seems like what could come to mind is a, yeah, but what about? And so my question is, do professing believers leave their spouses in our culture for reasons other than sexual immorality? So what do we do with that? In that situation, this is where it's important, and I would tell couples this in premarital, that if you're going to get married, make sure you are going to be members of a Bible, members, not attenders, members of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-practicing church. And I'll tell you why. If a professing believer were going to leave their spouse, we'll use the husband just so we don't get our pronouns mixed up, then our church and others would practice Matthew 18, which is what we call radical love in the body, where we are going after the wayward brother. And they were going to do in that, seeking to divorce their wife. We would go after them one-on-one and encourage repentance. And if it, the Bible says if they repent, you've won your brother. If they still wouldn't repent, we would send two or three after them to try to establish the facts. Are you seeking to divorce your wife? Yes. Was she sexually immoral? No. Then, brother, you don't have any grounds. You need to repent. If he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a pagan, an unbeliever, and a tax collector. What that means is part of God's grace to people who profess faith is the love of the body going after them. But if even after that they refuse to repent, then the Bible says we are permitted in that case to treat that person as if they are an unbeliever. We're not making the final determination, are they saved or not? But Scripture in several places tells us this is how you respond to a believer, this is how you respond to an unbeliever. So in this case, the professing believer who's gone through church discipline and has not repented, they are treated as an unbeliever, and then the believing spouse is to let them leave. If you're not in a Bible-believing, Bible-practicing church, it gets very mucky. So that's why it's part of God's grace to be planted in a Bible-believing, Bible-practicing church. So what's our conclusion today? What are we going to take away from this heavy topic? Well, the first thing I want us to leave with, marriage is good and is to be encouraged. It's good. You know, the disciples say, oh, this is hard teaching. But let, Jesus said, if you can accept it, you are to pursue marriage. If you are single and you don't want to be single, pursue marriage with a godly person. Quit waiting on perfection and pray they do too. (laughs) The Bible tells us that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. If you find a husband, it's a good thing. It is favor from the Lord. It also tells us an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. Same thing with an excellent husband. Not perfect, not a perfect person, an excellent one. And here's the key. If you are a Christ follower and you have the Holy Spirit within you and you are a student of the word, you have everything you need to be an excellent wife and an excellent husband. You have what you need. Now, some of you are married, and you're listening to it, Tony, you don't know who I'm married to, what you're talking about. And in the counseling ministry, I have a hint of what some of it looks like. I know it's hard, 
but you have so much more to live for in that marriage. First of all, God is working on you to sanctify you, but also Paul also referring to the Genesis passage talks about leaving and cleaving. He says, this mystery, this leaving and cleaving becoming one flesh is speaking with the reference to the relationship of Jesus and the church. So husbands, you could be married to a hard woman. And my guess is if that's true, your friends know it. But they get to see what it's like for Jesus to love a difficult person, maybe like them. We all know we're difficult. Wives, you may be married to someone who is not a good leader. However, they can see you being excited about the work of the Lord in that marriage, what the church is to be under Christ, being all about his business. We get to do that. We have more to live for than our personal comfort within the marriage. So I'm not minimizing this. I know from testimonies here, some of you guys are in very hard marriages, but like we've saying, because of Christ, you're not alone. You're not forsaken. Other one is grace and forgiveness is available. I know in a church this size, some of you have probably pursued an unbiblical divorce. And maybe right now you feel the weight on you from that. Okay, I wanna say with as much compassion as I can, the sin of pursuing an unbiblical divorce is no different than any sin I have committed because it required the death of Jesus. But you may be resting, yes, but I see that, but the consequences of my sin, the ramifications on the family is just so great. I, I just, I'm having a hard time appropriating God's forgiveness. I wanna encourage you with John, 1 John 1, 9. The apostle wrote this letter and he said, his purpose in writing this was so that you can have fellowship with God and one another and that your joy may be made complete. And the instruction he gave us was, If we confess our sins, if we agree with God, it's sinful. Let's stop rationalizing, saying, yeah, but my ex-spouse was this or that. If it was was an ungodly divorce, let's confess it and agree with God. And when we confess, it says, he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know, but I've encouraged people with this before and I got lazy and paraphrased it. I would would encourage, just confess your sins. He is faithful, he'll forgive you. And that is true. He's a promise keeper. He will forgive you. This part right here, he is righteous and just to forgive you. Does that, is that in addition to faithful or is that just Paul or John repeating words? It is additional. I'll tell you why. Here's an example. Let's say Janelle here owed me $10. Tamara knew about it and says, look, here, here's the $10 Chanel owes you. I'm better suited right now. Here, you take it. I take it. Next day, I go to Janelle and go, pay me the $10 you owe me. Am I being just? Am I being righteous? No, I've been paid. If you're under the weight of an unbiblical divorce, Jesus has paid the penalty. God is just. And so he cannot expect or extract another penalty. All we have to do is confess and appropriate his forgiveness. So we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. The men are gonna come forward and they're gonna pass. And if you're not familiar with this, they're gonna pass some broken pieces of cracker. That just represents the body of Jesus broken 
to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you. And then they're going to pass some juice, which represents the blood of Christ spilled for us. As they pass and you take the elements, we're going to hold them. I want you to prayerfully consider the offer to be cleansed and to be cleansed by God when we confess our sins because of the finished work of Christ. If you have not placed faith in Christ as your Savior, I'd encourage you, let the elements go by, but prayerfully consider, would today be the day that I place faith in Christ as my sin bearer and the Lord of my life? And then I'll come back and we'll take together. Give me. 
Father, we do acknowledge you as good and perfect Father. We're so grateful, Lord, that because of the completed work of Jesus on the cross, we can experience forgiveness unto salvation, and we can experience forgiveness that restores us to fellowship with you. Lord, may the taking of these elements just be a reminder of that truth, and may we be mindful of it throughout our week. Amen. Let's take together. I don't know about you, but when I think about a Savior who died to pay the penalty of my many sins so that I can live such a blessed eternal life, I can't help but sing about, oh, what a Savior. So let's stand and sing about our Savior. I want to thank you for coming. God in his providence had this passage taught this Sunday and our divorce care ministry is starting their next session this Thursday at 615. If you have been impacted by divorce and you would like to be equipped and learn how to respond biblically, I encourage you to consider taking that class. There will be men and women available to help you at the equipped gazebo out in the courtyard. Second, I know we have students here and students You may come from a home where there's divorce. There's divorce in the background. Just acknowledge the elephant in the room. There is no divorce unless there was sin involved. But I want you to know we don't want you to grow in bitterness. If you want to know what is my response to this, because I have newsflash, sinful parents, like we all do, I encourage you, your leaders are ready and prepared to help you walk through that. Bill Winton, Mike Thompson, Dan Fuller, I encourage you to reach out to them. If you're new and you're a guest, we'd love to meet you at the guest reception. That's going to be the first gazebo out to your left. Until we meet again, go in peace.